Well, the way that a dad lives his life can have a great impact on his home, and the way he lives his life goes well beyond the home. It impacts how God can use him in in the life of a church as well as out in society. If you've been here over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the characteristics that God says are required of a man who will be a leader in the church. And today as we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, where we're going to finish out this series, we'll see that a number of the qualifications that we look at today deal with a man and his home. As it deals with um, how he leads, it says in 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 through 5, as well as in verse 12, it says that a leader must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? There's a Chinese proverb that says it's harder to lead a family than to rule a nation. It's harder to lead a family than to rule a nation. And when we look at those who are qualified to lead the church, what God says is we need to look at how they handle their home. And that deals with every aspect of the home, from their finances to how they uh, treat their kids to how they honor their wife. As we look around in society, there are many people that we see who may be great leaders, but they're poor leaders at home. And society says we can separate the two. But what God tells us is we cannot separate the two. He says before a man can lead other families and minister to other families in a church, he first has to take care of that which God has entrusted with him in his own home. One day there was a a man who was talking with his wife and he said, Honey, on a scale of 1 to 10, how am I doing as a husband? And when the wife hesitated, he said, What's wrong? And she said, Honey, you know I'm not good with fractions. Now, you know, we get assessed at work, men, and ladies, it applies to you as well as we're looking at these lists. As we've seen, all of these qualifications are those that are marks of Christian maturity. So you can insert women instead of men, and those of you who maybe yet don't have a home can look at these characteristics. And as you think about your own life, if you were to be assessed in how you act at home, what would be your rating? What would people say about the categories that we see? Can you say you treat your family with the same level of respect as you do uh, fellow workers or the customers that you care for? Are you a parent who is patient at home as you are at work with others? Do you train and encourage your children like you do your employees? Ask yourself if you would like to have uh, a supervisor at work like you are at home. Are you more of a dictator or are you a, disip- are you a discipler? In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, it says, And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but, um, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is what's being talked about here in 1 Timothy 3, 4, where it says that a leader keeps his children under control with all dignity. This word dignity, it's found in 1 Timothy 3, 4, verses 8 and 11 as well. The word means respectfulness, holiness. The word dignity uh, has this meaning of respectful and holiness. We'll talk a little bit more about this word later in this message. But here the focus is on how a parent is called on to discipline our children in a way that does not crush them, in a way that doesn't humiliate your kids with cutting comments. Now, there are some parents who have fallen into the trap of going too far the other way. 
And they say either because they grew up in a home where they had an overbearing parent, they don't want to do that, so they're absentee, or they've bought into uh, kind of the the feel-good lie of society about the self-esteem generation where there should always be nothing but positive encouragement and never any correction. And yet what we find here is that the Bible tells us that we are to discipline our children in Ephesians 6, 4, but it says just making sure we do so with dignity respectfulness, holiness, understanding that we're shaping them. In Proverbs thirteen twenty four, it says, He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Some of you will recall the old Saturday evening post, and it had an article in it one time about a stepfather who was trying to win the affection of his new son. And he overindulged this boy. He was buying him things. He never corrected him. He was just going overboard in, in the one direction. And one day this uh, father, the stepfather and son were out on a hike. And as they were traveling down a back trail, they came to this place where there was a waterfall going over a cliff and there was a, a pool below and it was shaded area. And the father said, let's just take a break and rest here. And as he sat down, leaning against a tree, uh, just kind of enjoying the break, the boy went off and kind of explored around the area. Now, after a little while, the stepfather couldn't find the son, so he began calling for him. And he got up and looked around, and he saw the boy's baseball hat floating in the, in the water. And he started screaming for the son. And when the son didn't answer, he dove into the water, thinking the boy had fallen in. And, and he was diving under the water over and over, trying to find the boy. And finally, in, in exhaustion, uh, he drug himself to the shore and threw himself on the bank. And at that very moment, he kind of heard a little laughter coming from behind a tree. And he looks up and he sees the boy standing there. And he says, where have you been? And he said, well, I was watching you. And he said, why didn't you call when, why didn't you answer when I called you? And he said, well, I wanted to see what was going to happen. And the father said, well, I'll show you what's going to happen. And, and he spanked that boy like few boys have ever been spanked. And on the way back home, the father suddenly felt um, hot little fingers gripping his hand and, and a choked voice saying, I'm sorry. I'm awfully sorry as the tears streamed down his cheek. He said, but I didn't know whether you really loved me because you never spanked me like the other children's fathers do. Now in that story, we see two things. One is that we are never to discipline out of anger. The other thing that we see is how this little boy knew and wanted to see, is this man really a parent or is he just a pal? Society tells us we should be their pal, but God tells us we should be their parent. You see, kids understand that love includes discipline. The Bible tells us that about God and his love for us. It says in Hebrews twelve six, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Now, as we talk about discipline, what should it look like? John Wilmot once said, I had six theories about raising children, and then I had six children, and now I have no theories. You see, there's not a one-size-fits-all, is there? I have three kids, and each one needs love and discipline in different levels and measures. And what I've also found is it's a moving target. What worked with them when they were little doesn't necessarily work at, at the next stage of life. And so as you look at how to discipline your own children, as parents, the first thing we need to do is pray for wisdom. Sometimes we need to say, God, I don't understand 
this little one you've entrusted to me, or this adolescent, what happened to my child as I move into those older years? And another thing is to have a progressive plan where there are varying levels of discipline. You don't just start with corporal punishment. You start talking to the child. You start by talking about privileges. They can be withheld if they do things that are not right. You have timeouts. You may move up to different levels of discipline. And when you discipline a child, there may be times where you as a parent need a timeout yourself. You know, there are times, I said, we're not to discipline in anger. And there may be times where you're feeling angry. And what you need to do is just tell your child, you know, go to your room and I'll be there in a little while. And you go until you can calm down. And then you go in and you speak with them. Now, in those times where you maybe have gone overboard, you responded out of anger or you were overbearing, as a parent, be willing to say to your child, I'm sorry. I was too hard on you. I made a mistake. Will you forgive me? Even in the times where discipline is done under control and in the right way, it's good to follow it up with a hug and to tell your child, let me walk you through why I did what I did. It's because I love you. I'm trying to lead you in the direction that God wants you to go. I'm trying to shape you and prepare you for society. As you look at this word discipline, notice that it has the same root as discipling. When we discipline a child, what we are doing is discipling the child. We're growing them up to go in God's direction for them. Now, the Bible is clear that um, God draws all children and all adults to himself. It says he draws all men and women to himself. And so as a parent, when you disciple your child, there's no guarantee that they're going to go the direction that you want, much less uh, beginning that foundation of faith with your child. But you as a parent have to ask yourself, what are you doing to help them on their journey to Jesus? What are you doing to create an environment that is conducive to them coming to Christ? Are you drawing them to God or are you driving them away from God in what you do? As a father or mother, we can't choose Christ for our child. That is a personal decision each child has to make on their own, but we can create an environment that is conducive. Think about a greenhouse where plants are nurtured and grown. The environment is controlled so that the temperature is right, the soil is good, the amount of water is there, and we as parents have that ability to create a home environment that is conducive to a child coming to know and love the Lord. As you think about your life, how often do your kids see you as parents praying together or with them? Do they see you reading the Bible regularly by yourself or with them? Do you lead them in times of prayer? Do you help them to understand why the decisions you're making in your life are guided by God and his word? What are you doing to teach your children about God? In Titus 1.6, it says we are to, a leader is to have children who are not accused of dissipation. This, this word, uh, it says having children who believe in Titus 1.6. And then it says uh, not having children who are accused of dissipation. Again, in Titus 1.6, this word means rebellion. And as you look at this word, rebellion, it, it means to scatter or to lose. The word means to scatter or to lose. So sometimes you have a child that for a period of time is wayward. But it doesn't mean that you are disqualified. It doesn't mean that you failed as a parent. The question is, have they ultimately been lost? And we don't know the story until their life chapters are completed. 
And so if you have a child who is wayward, you have to ask yourself, what are you doing to direct and correct them even in those times? There are many examples of of godly leaders who had a period of rebellion, godly parents who had children who rebelled under them. One well-known example is Franklin Graham, the son of Billy Graham. And for a period of time, he lived as a prodigal. He lived a rebellious life, one that was uh, marked by dissipation. And yet today he leads a worldwide ministry telling others about Jesus Christ. The story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15 tells us of another son who lived a life of rebellion. But then he was brought back through God's discipline, through the things in his life. If you have a child who's a prodigal right now, don't give up on them. Pray for them. Continue to strengthen them. Continue to correct them. Continue to show your love for them and show God's love for them. Remember that in Romans 5, 8, it says God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you have a child living in rebellion, love them enough to say the life you're living is destructive. But then point them to the cross of Jesus Christ, to the one who loved them enough to die for them. Another qualification that is related to this word dignity that we talked about earlier is found in 1 Timothy 3.8. It says that deacons likewise must be men of dignity. So this is speaking not just of the way in which you disciple and discipline your children, but it's speaking of your own life. Uh, This word is the Greek word simnos, and it describes uh, gravity and dignity. It's the same word found in all of these passages. And as you think about what this word means, uh, Vine's lexicon of the Greek language says no English word exactly conveys the meaning that it, it embraces. It combines both the thoughts of gravity and dignity. Mool, who is another commentator, says this word speaks both of seriousness of purpose and self-respect in conduct. Seriousness of purpose and self-respect in conduct. Now, this word doesn't mean you can't have fun. Sometimes that's how Christians approach this word. Have you ever heard the song, If You're Happy and You Know It? You know all the, the choruses that go with it. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you're happy and you know it, stomp your feet, right? You're singing it in your mind. Can I teach you a new song? If you're saved and you know it, will you inform your face? Have you ever seen Christians? Many of us are so grim. We, we think that this, this idea of being dignified means we need to walk around with a starch collar that's choking us. We need to speak with a stained glass type of voice and holier than thou verbiage. And that we're to frown at little children if they're having fun, right? That's not what God wants from us. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. What God says is that we need to be those who exude joy, that we who have Christ in our life have joy that shines out. Spurgeon was a famous preacher from the last century, and he was, he was teaching a group of aspiring pastors on preaching. And he said, men, when you talk about heaven, let your face shine as the sun. He said, when you speak of hell, well, your normal face will do. This requirement to be dignified is, is repeated again in 1 Timothy 3.11. There it says, women must likewise be dignified. 
The Greek word for women here is gynekais. It's why women's doctors are called a gynecologist. It comes from this word. The word means both a wife and a woman. And so there's a debate here about whether this requirement for women to be dignified speaks of the wife of a church leader or whether it is a characteristic found in the life of a woman who loves and walks with the Lord. And the answer is simply it applies to both groups. What we saw earlier is that if a man has children who are not living as they should, it can disqualify him. And the same thing can happen to a man. If he has a wife who is a gossip, if he has a wife who doesn't demonstrate godly walk, because it can bring reproach on him as well as the church in which he leads. And it also speaks of his spiritual leadership in the home. Now, in contrast to this negative impact uh, that a wife could have on her husband, she can also bring honor. And she can also be an asset to the husband. We find this in Proverbs 31 where it says in verse 21, Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. There you'll recall that in Proverbs 31 we find all these characteristics marking a godly woman. And part of the advantage of her life is that it gives prominence to her husband as well. Women who walk with God don't just bring honor to their husbands, but they also bring honor to God in themselves. The Bible is full of women who were used greatly by God. As we've been talking about uh, leadership in the church, we find women throughout the scriptures who were leaders. We find Miriam and Anna and Huldah who spoke for God as prophetesses. There are women like Queen Esther and Abigail who were known not just for their beauty, but for their brains and their courage as they were used to save the lives of many. There are women like Deborah the judge who helped to lead the nation in a time of war and Jael who killed the enemy king Sisera. We find women like Dorcas who are described in Acts 9.38 as being a woman who was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity. There's Phoebe Phoebe, who is described in in Romans 16.1 as a servant of the church. There are ladies like Lydia who provided a place for the church to meet and supported God's work that she did as a businesswoman. The book of Acts tells us about Priscilla, who along with her husband Aquila, discipled leaders in the church. Acts 18.26 says, And when Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God more correctly, more accurately. Beyond these women in the Bible, there are countless women throughout the history of the church who have impacted the church today. There are ladies like Amy Carmichael, Fanny Crosby, and Elizabeth Elliot who helped the modern church through the hymns and inspirational writings that they have done. There's a woman, you may not know her name, by the name of Henrietta Myers. She's a woman who's impacted some of the men that you have heard of, like Billy Graham that I mentioned earlier. Billy Graham said she has had more influence on my life than any other woman beside my mother. Myers was the woman who led Bill Bright to the Lord. Bill Bright, as you might remember, started Campus Crusade for Christ, which is now called Crew. That ministry started in her home under Bill's leading. As we look around Wayside Chapel today, we would not be the church we are without the many godly women in our staff and in our pews who lead and who help this church be all that God wants it to be. As you think about your life, whether it's as a man or a woman, how does it compare with the qualification of 1 Timothy 3.11, where it says women must be likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things? 
This word temperate is one that we talked about in an earlier sermon. You recall it means to be sober, not mixed with wine. We saw that the meaning is to be free from the influence of anything other than the Holy Spirit. If you've ever been around somebody who's drunk, you know that their mouth will run sometimes out of control. And the idea here is that the the picture we see is the damage that can come from an out-of-control mouth as it says that they are not to be malicious gossips. The Greek word that is used here for gossip is diabolus. Maybe you've heard the name Diablo for the devil. It's one of his names. The word literally means a slanderer. And when we slander, when we gossip, we are literally doing the work of the devil. And what God says is we are not to speak like that. The ability to watch what we say is an important quality for all of us, but especially those who are in church leadership. Because there are many times you are made aware of confidential situations, of private prayer requests. And if you're somebody that cannot hold a confidence, then you're not able to be a leader in the church. You know, one of the sad ways that Christians sometimes gossip is through sharing prayer requests. People will sometimes say, you know, we need to share all the juicy details because the Bible says to pray specifically. And so we need to let everybody know what's going on. Friends, why do you want to take something as sacred as prayer and use it to do the work of the devil, to gossip? If you're ever wondering, should I share this particular situation I'm aware of, I want you to just remember this. It's the difference between a butcher and a surgeon. Do you know the difference between a butcher and a surgeon? They both cut meat, but one of them does it for the purpose of devouring, while the other one does it for the purpose of healing. And you have to ask yourself when you're sharing something, what is the purpose? Is it to tear somebody down? Is it to share some juicy tidbit of knowledge that you have? Or is it really to bring healing, to really ask God to bring help into the situation? You know, if you have some juicy tidbit of information you just have to share, then do it to share it with God in your private time of prayer. You don't have to communicate it to anybody else. Just talk to God about the individual or the situation rather than your friends. Another qualification we find in 1 Timothy 3.8, it says that a leader is not to be double-tongued. The word is dialogos. It literally means two-tongued. This describes the type of person who speaks out of both sides of his or her mouth. It's the type of person who says one thing in private and another thing in public. And we know we can't trust that kind of individual. And if you can't be trusted, you certainly can't be trusted as a leader. This characteristic applies as well to telling the truth. You know, rather than shading the truth, people should be able to take what we say at face value. Jody Powell was the former press secretary for President Carter, and he was speaking at a conference on ethics and integrity in the federal government. And I know some of you are thinking, well, that's an oxymoron. But as, as Powell spoke, he said the reason we should tell the truth in government most of the time is so that when we lie, we are believed. Did you catch that? The reason we should tell the truth most of the time is so that when we lie, we can be believed. And that statement is especially disconcerting when you remember it was on a conference on ethics and integrity. You know, the world says it's okay to be double-tongued. But God says we are to be men and women of our word. Men and women who our word is our bond. Men and women who share the word of God. 
and the love of God with others. As we talk about God's work, there is a time coming when he will reward those who have served him. For those who have been faithful in leadership, there are special rewards. In 1 Timothy 3.13, it says, Those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 5.2, and again in verse 4 says of elders, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Whether you are a leader in the church or a person in the pew, I want you to look at your life today and ask yourself if you're living in such a way that when you stand before the Lord in heaven, he will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. I want to close with this story of a carpenter. He came to the end of his career. He had served faithfully under one contractor for 30 years. He was a craftsman. He was known for the, the work that he did. And uh, one day he came to the, to the owner of the company and he said, it's been a great run. He said, but I'm old and I'm tired and I really need to hang up my hammer. He said, I could really continue to use the paycheck, but I'm, I'm, I'm just at a point I can't continue on. So I want to I, I wanna give my notice. I'm done. The contractor said that he was sorry to see such a faithful servant go. And he said, but just as a personal favor, He said, I have this one house left that I need to finish, and I I really need you to do the job. The carpenter said, no, I I just don't have another house in me. I can't do it. And the, the man pleaded and begged with him. And after some arm twisting, he finally agreed reluctantly. Now, in a short time, it was easy to see that his heart was not in the work. He just wanted to get the job done, so he cut corners. There was shoddy workmanship. It was an unfortunate way to end a great career. As the owner of the company came to inspect the house, they were walking toward the house. The carpenter was a little fearful because he knew he hadn't quite done a great job. But the owner never walked through the door of the house. Instead, he stopped at the front door. He handed the carpenter the keys to the house. And he said, this is my gift to you. This house is yours as a thank you for your many years of faithful service to me and this company. What a shock. What a shame. If only the carpenter had known he was building his own house, he would have done it all so differently. It would have been the best house of his career. And yet now he had to live out the rest of his life in a home that had been built not so well. As you think about the house that you're building with your life, would you say that you're building wisely or are you just getting by? Men, those of you who are fathers, what kind of home are you building What kind of family are you discipling and raising within the walls of whatever house or apartment you're in? Men and women, whether you're a parent or not, what does your life look like? What are you building for eternity? When we face our master, when our life on this earth is over, will he say to us, you have been a man or a woman who served me well. You were a man or a woman who walked with me, who grew in your walk, who impacted the lives of many. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's how God desires to see us live our life. Will you join me, please, as we close in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for your word that points us to what it means to be mature men and women. We thank you, Father, for the high standard that you've given to us as Christians, what you've called us to. 
Father, we know that the greatest honor and privilege we have is to bear the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, as a Christian. So, Father, as we live our life, would we reflect the one that we follow? Would we reflect the one who gave everything for us, his very life to save us from our sins? Father, as we leave here today, help us to be those who walk with you, who talk as you want us to, who lead others to know you better and deeper. Father, we thank you for this day that we've set aside to honor the men here who have been given the high calling and privilege of being fathers. There will be times that they fail. There will be times that they will fall short of your standard and even ours. But we thank you, Father, for these men who stand in the gap, who do what they can to represent you, who do what they can to provide for families and and protect them in a world that is going off the deep end. Father, would you give them an extra measure of your grace? And today, Father... Would we be sure to honor those who are our heavenly, you who are our perfect heavenly father? Would we honor those here on earth who are trying to follow you and lead us to you? We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Happy Father's Day. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.